Tony Duchesne here, Drinks with Tony. Welcome to the show. This is episode 88. Our guest is Billy Van Zant. Uh, we'll get to that interview in a minute. I have, I got, I got an opening to the show. What we're going to do is answer questions from students and also from email. So if you have writing questions or uh, industry questions, feel free to email duchesne at gmail.com. I will answer them. This is a this is one from Dan, and he has a quick question for me about queries and uh, writing query letters to agents. So he's been he's been working on his query letter, um, and he's concerned that he's written a book that's literary and character driven, dealing with economic themes. It's a niche it's a niche novel, and doesn't scream commercial success or broad audiences. Uh, he came across across a publishing house, and they seemed that like they would be a perfect fit thematically. He wants to know in the base in the best case scenario that they take me on, my novel gets published, but it sells jack shit. Would I be fucked when pitching a second novel, or could I bridge the books into getting short fiction published? Would an agent with more marketing reach marketing reach potentially take me on if my first book didn't do well, or is that the kiss of death? Well, one. First off, let me tell you, just becoming a writer is the kiss of death. We've already we're already dancing with the devil there. Um, in the end, though, it, what what it comes to is just do your best job on the novel and let the novel speak for itself. That's the great thing about writing a novel and just being the sole person that's on the book. Even though there are you know we have our editors and agents and so many other people to thank, but when you're working on the novel, it's all you. So. Um, no matter what happens, I I I, uh, I suggest like even even if you get a two hundred thousand dollars advance advance and you get a lot of marketing behind that, that could kill your career more than a small advance with no sales. There's many ways to to kiss that death. So I think the main thing is to worry that your name is on the book and the book itself is the best representation of your work. It's like the very best where you can't bleed out anymore. Um, and then the other thing is never listen to marketing. <laughs> Um, ne never write towards marketing, write towards your truth and towards your guts. It's, I was just, I was just zooming down the YouTube wormhole and I was watching an old video of Metallica, master of puppets and just reminded that, man, you know, and back in those days when it was all hair metal and you better look like a, you better look pretty and also scream correctly into the microphone. And Metallica was just like a bunch of pimply dudes just going, nah. We got our own thing, and this is what we're doing. And even without radio airplay, they were selling arenas. It's just, it's badass. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, and that's our question of the week. Uh, feel free to send questions. Also, in other great book news, I'm reading this book, The Five Books of Robert Moses by Arthur Narcessian. He's going to be on the show in a few weeks. Uh, no, I'm sorry. We're taping in a few weeks. He's going to be on the show in July. And his uh, event with Bob Odenkirk is going to be July 16th. And that is a virtual event out on Akashic Books. All right. And now this. Hello, this is Billy Van Zant, And you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Bill... Oh. Crap. See, I'm I messed this up already. Billy Van Zant. There you go. I want to do this exactly right. And then the TV show is the Hughleys or the is it the Hughleys? Hughleys. Hughleys. Hughleys, got it. With a G. Hit hit the G. Hugh hit the G. <sighs> All right. 
You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Billy Van Zant. He is the co-author and star of 25 plays that have been produced worldwide in thousands of productions, including the off-Broadway comedies, Silent Laughter, You've Got Hate Mail, Drop Dead, and Boomer Boys Musical. He's the recipient of the People's Choice Award, a PRISM Award, and two NAACP Image Awards for his work on television for Martin and the Hugelies. He also has been honored with an Emmy Award nomination for his work on I Love Lucy, the very first show. His new book, Get in the Car, Jane, is part behind-the-scenes gossip, part textbook, all truth. Billy Van Zant, how are you? I'm exhausted after listening to that, but I'm, I'm better. <laughs> <laughs> I, I gotta apologize because I I'm not a good I'm not a good actor. Like if you were to direct me on that, would you? What would you do? Uh, would you say? You oh, know, no, it was it was perfectly good. All right. Perfectly good. Yeah. <laughs> I I'm just blown away by the experience you have and the stuff that I know about. I I didn't even know, you know, what like behind the scenes on Martin. I love Lucy. You got to meet. You got to hang out with Lucille Ball. I, and and then I love. I, I'm going to freak out for like, everyone will freak out when they read this book. Anyway, I have way too many questions. I know, I know that I'm, no, I'm making you nervous with so many questions all at once. Well, depends what the questions are, but go ahead. I just want to know how your morning is. <laughs> my morning's been great. My, my morning's great. The weird thing with this quarantine thing is uh, for a writer, it doesn't really change your day very much. You know, you wake up, you go to the computer, you go for a walk in the afternoon, you binge watch TV at night, and then, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's not much different than what I do before the quarantine. We have been preparing for this all of our lives. That's right. I, I feel the same way. My friends are just like, you gotta be kidding me. You get to just do what you do? And I'm like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like what everyone has to do now is essentially my schedule. Yeah. And, I, and there's no traffic, too, which is great. Oh, isn't it crazy? I love driving in L.A. right now. This is how the roads were meant to be, you see? Yeah. I wish I had a I – I, I wish I was teaching on campus at UCLA Extension um, and it wasn't closed because I would love to drive to UCLA right now. It's just yeah. fantastic. Yeah. I – okay, so this – I'm just – this this book is fantastic. Oh, thank <laughs> on you. So many levels. Thank you. Um, and I'm I'm get I get my uh, I'm like oh my god that guy I used to like is a dick. Uh, <laughs> man, I didn't know this about that. What you have is a um, such a great behind the scenes point of view as a writer on TV and producer. Well, I, I was I was lucky in that when I first started, I had the good sense to keep a journal on every show I worked on. So when I started to put the book together, I could go back and see things through the eyes of a kid who never worked for TV before. And then you watch me get more and more bitter as the years go on. <laughs> but uh, no, so it was, uh, yeah, I've, 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 had a, I've had a really good run here. So, I, And that's great that you keep a journal because I feel like, especially, you know, uh, depending on what we do as our, as our careers, especially if we're in the arts, we forget those innocent moments because we've been through so much uh, pressure and crap when the, when the uh, stakes get higher and higher. Yeah. So it was, it was pretty important to keep those journals, it seems. 
Yeah, and I, I never kept them at the intention of doing anything with them except for possibly, uh, you know, when I write a letter to somebody back home, I could say, well, this happened today. But it ended up that uh, my kids knew that I did TV shows. They were, when, I, when I did my plays, they'd be in the theater and they'd experience the whole process. But when I did my TV shows, they had no idea what I did except Daddy was at the studio. So I started to put this book together sort of a, as a gift to them of this is what I do, you know. And, and uh, luckily the journals helped me fill in a lot of blanks. And uh, so now they sort of get what daddy did for a living, you know. And, and what do your, what do your uh, kids think about the book? What were their, what were their opinions when they, when they like went through it? Well, I heard two separate things. Uh, one was... Uh, because I, I talk about them and how I, I, I started in TV and grew up, grew into writing and producing my own shows. And then when my kids were born, I didn't want to leave the house. So I sort of took a back seat and became a consulting producer, which means you work one or two or three days a week on somebody else's show, but then you get to go home and you don't have to take the responsibility with you, you know? And so when my kids were born, I made the move to, to do that. And they, that meant a lot to them because they didn't really realize that. The other thing they said is, you work with a lot of horrible people, Dad. <laughs> and I swear I didn't, I, I, I didn't think it came out that way in the book, but okay. <laughs> it's, um, now, how do, now, how can one catapult themselves to becoming a consulting producer without doing all the work? You can't. You have to do that first. <laughs> yeah. you, have to, you have to do that first. Yeah. You're like, and can the, I just beeline straight to the two to three days a week and not have responsibility? In this exactly. But the weird thing was when I did that, and then I started to do it on two different shows at the same time, it's, it was, that was a mistake. So I'd do two, two days on one show, two days on another show. But your, your head, you'd be so into the cadence of the actor on the first show that it made it difficult to write the script for the second show because, you, you know, the job of a TV writer is to imitate the creator of the show's writing. So it doesn't matter what I, how I would write it. I have to write it like so-and-so would write it. And um, so to go back and forth between two different shows and two different writers that you were trying to imitate, that got to be a little crazy. And, and what's interesting about that as a writer, you really got to dig into the character. And at the same time, you're digging into another person's vision. So yeah. there's got to be some schizophrenia moments almost there. No, there's a lot of uh, biting your tongue, I will say that, because if, uh, you know, if you have a better joke than the one the executive producer put in the script, you better just keep your mouth closed, you know? <laughs> That's what I found interesting about your book, is how much uh, politics kind of plays in, or the power, there's like a power struggle, where I, it drives me, I was like on, I was on one independent film that, that I felt was, just worked out great on that end. I didn't realize how much, power struggle and egos it takes where I, I feel like everyone should be for one goal. Let's just make us the best thing possible, but it's not yeah. everyone's. It feels like people are just thinking of their next moves at this level. There, there's, there's just such high stakes, especially for, you know, stars coming up and performers that it's, you, you got to just kind of sit back and go and watch it burn a little bit. Yeah, and the and the hard part of writing for for comedians, um, I wrote for Martin Lawrence and Don Rickles and Andrew Dice Clay and the Wayans Brothers and a bunch of, and Bob Newhart. The weird thing about writing for comedians is, until they've met you, basically, 
they have been their own writer, director, producer, and star. And now suddenly here's a, a stranger telling them what works and what doesn't work. And it makes for a little bit of tension when you first start out, but uh, eventually they have to learn to trust you and you have to learn. And, and I think if you're smart and we've tried to do that is I would more than be more than happy to listen to the star and cause they know that they know their act better than I do. Right. <clears throat> And and they're coming into a different medium. When I mean, what a, what a comedian does is just it always blows my mind. The craft of comedy, where they come, you know, especially Martin Lawrence playing to like seventeen thousand people on weekends. Right. When you're in production, he's developed that for years. He knows that. Don't get in his way, but get on a TV show. Listen to the gurus of TV, and you know, drop the ego a little bit. I don't know. I feel like people lose that when. You know, they're in the stadium, and then the next thing, they're in a, a small conference room at a table read, and they're not getting the same juice. <laughs> yeah, and you and you get to a point where with some of, with some of the guys I've worked for, it, you get to a point where, gee, I'm sorry that uh, this TV show is getting in the way of your stand-up career, you know, because they, they were too anxious to get back out on the road and hurry up, let's speed this up, and, and I'm trying to make a good TV show. <laughs> so, yeah, you know. exactly, and I got to say, all the, the uh, well, the, I'm so happy the way that I'm that's the Wayan Brothers chapter reads. I love them to death. I'm a huge fan of the Wayan Brothers of In Living Color. They grew up Jehovah's Witnesses like I did, so I, I know I'm like I'm like okay, ex Jehovah's Witnesses doing another one. From the <laughs> they come out they come out looking well and pretty good in your book. Good, good. They were it was an it was a very interesting. Uh, Couple, well, it was a couple of months, I guess, because they they had the WB network, which doesn't exist anymore. That was coming on the air for the first time, and we got a call a couple of weeks before then saying that they, Warner Brothers wanted us to take over the show, and uh, and so we we finally agreed to it, and we ended up going over there, and we only had a couple of there was an actual deadline from when we started to when the show went on the air because it was. Uh, the first time the network was launching. And we had to sort of create the show, cast it, film it, write it, edit it, and get it out in about four or five weeks, something crazy like that. And uh, luckily for me, the two of them were great to have in the room, as in the writer's room, because a lot of times you work with stars who, once they enter the writer's room, you realize, oh, I'm not gonna get any work done now because they're gonna, you know, they're going to want to do this and want to do that. It may not be right. You got to be political about the whole thing. The Wayans brothers acted like just members of the writing staff, and it was really good. Plus, you had them right in the room. Same thing with Drew Carey. We worked on his pilot and a couple of his. Uh, anyway, uh, to have the right people as comedians in the room who can just try out the material while you're writing it is fantastic. You know, yeah, that, that, that's got to be a dream. The, um good for them uh and the and yeah it, and i really love that chapter because it shows just uh, well yeah you had to fire the showrunner yes. <laughs> and you got roped into that that was so crazy we had no idea we were told the guy was fired and we were going to take over the show so we walk over to the warner brothers ranch and we're we're supposed to meet sean and marlon for the first time and we walk in the room and Sean and Marlon and their manager, Eric, and another guy were sitting there. 
And uh, they said, can we help you? I said, yes, I'm Billy Van Zandt. This is Jane Milmore. We're the new showrunners. And the other guy who I didn't know who he was said, what do you mean the new showrunners? And we realized he was the showrunner and we were sent over there to basically tell him he was fired. So he got up and went out and confirmed with his agent he was fired. And we were thrown into complete madness over there because there were no scripts ready. We were told that there was a, a, a big writing staff and a big stack of scripts ready to go and we just had to take over. And the, there were three scripts and they all had three different premises. It was like nobody talked to anybody about what the show was. So in one, I, I can't remember what they were now, but there was a, a John Witherspoon who played their father. He, he, was, he was called Pops, that's all that, but he was a different character in each script. They had, had different uh, jobs in each script. And uh, so we had, we had a, lot of, a lot of tap dancing to do there before we could pull that off. Yeah, and the deadline is just, I just like look at the deadline. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, I guess, was, that was luxury compared to when we did suddenly Susan for Brooke Shields. We literally had two weeks from the time we were asked to do it to the time it went to the network to, uh, to get on the fall schedule uh, back at the, what they call the, the upfronts back in New York. Yeah. Two weeks from the time we met with Warren Littlefield at NBC and we, again, we thought we were going over there to give notes on a script that was in trouble. And we walked into a meeting and there were about a hundred people there with notepads. And Warren Littlefield said, I want to start this meeting by thanking Billy and Jane for taking over Suddenly Susan. And we had never worked for NBC before. We really got screwed into that too because we couldn't say no. But we, we, we wrote that script in I think 48 hours. And uh, two weeks to, from the day that that meeting took place to when the show was finished and turned back into the network. So uh, the Wayans Brothers was a, that was a cakewalk. <laughs> that was luxury. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, um, what, uh, you, with, with your playwriting experience and working with Jane and then the TV writing experience, it seems like they really fed into each other where you, you were able to really just maneuver things like Suddenly Susan and also, I loved the um, what I forgot what I forgot the title of the play where you did it in vignettes, but you were <laughs> writing the but you were writing it after it was already cast. And it had yeah. the title. It's, kind of and, called, it's called "Do Not Disturb." There's actually a picture in the book of the cast photo, and everybody's in costumes. For, we had not written the show at all because <laughs> we got we were we sold the uh, a, a TV special to CBS where we found the I Love Lucy pilot, and so we. That came. That fell in our lap right at the end, and we 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 write. We used to write a play a year and sell it out back in New Jersey, where we're from. So for that show, we were we were running behind. So I just gave them the theater a title. I said, "Call it Do Not Disturb," and and they so they started selling tickets. We didn't have one word written, and then my my uh, my set guy called up and said, "Billy, I need a script. I have to build a set." I said, I'm not giving you a script yet. I want a door over here, a window over there. It's a hotel in New York. And Jane said, what are you doing? I said, whatever it is, we'll take, it'll take place in a hotel. We'll figure it out later. Then we got the Lucy pilot, and, uh, and we had no time to actually write the show. But by now, it was sold out. So we got on a plane. We had one sketch written. We decided we were going to do a bunch of little sketches because and stu stupidly, I thought that would be easier to write but each sketch had to have a beginning, middle, and an end, and a theme, and a character, and all this sort of thing. 
So instead of writing one play, we had to write six or seven. <laughs> and uh, so we got off the plane. The actors had been cast, but had no idea what they were going to be in. And I, I said, okay, guys, here we have a new way of working this year. We're going to rehearse the first sketch until it's perfect. Then I'll give you the second sketch. We rehearsed the first sketch for three days while Jane and I were back at her house going, okay, what's the second script? Okay, well, how about we do this? So we ended up writing. That's how we wrote the whole show. It was, uh, it was a nightmare, <laughs> but we, we pulled it off. It's funny how you reversed engineered the whole thing because usually it's, compl it's the complete opposite. Yeah. Uh, the, the script is locked. Now let's go to costumes, or right? Now let's go to costumes. Yeah. Now let's yeah. go to props. <laughs> so that picture that's in the book has everybody in costume for sketches that hadn't been written yet. <laughs> and one of which is Jane in a, like an I Dream of Jeannie dress costume. And that, we never wrote that sketch. So it made, it made no sense for the publicity photos that went out about the show. Um, yeah. But the, what I do, what we always do, we did, is uh, I always write for somebody specifically, whether I use them or not, so I can hear their, their voice, you know. So in that regard, writing for TV, for, let's say, when we went on the Bob Newhart show, we already knew the characters, so I could write for those people. When I write plays or I write an original pilot, uh, I always think, okay, okay my, my friend Tom will play that role, Cheryl will play that role. And they may not even ever do it, but at least I can hear it. And it, and it cause I, I, what I don't like are scripts where everybody has the same cadence. Everybody speaks the same. I was actually, as an actor, a long time ago, I was on uh, the new Odd Couple on TV. I did one episode. It was just terrible. And in the middle of the read-through, the first day of the script, the guy playing Felix and the guy playing uh, Oscar accidentally switched lines. And they got about a half a page and a half in before anybody realized they were reading the wrong roles. That sort of tells you you got the script's not right. <laughs> you know, you should be able to tell immediately. That that makes a lot of sense, and that's kind of a good um, the the thinking of thinking of people in your real life and just putting their their yeah. how they talk could could separate the dialogue. Uh, yeah. So you can because it should. In the end, a perfect script should read without the dialogue tags after, with, without the name tags after a while. Yeah. We just know, oh, that's Edna. Oh, that's Nick. Oh, that's... Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, and we, I've always done that. And we also, uh, whenever we would finish in the middle of the 4,000 drafts that become your first draft, uh, we would also do a, a, a character read. Uh, you know, we'd read the script specifically for, you know, the character of Joe, make sure he tracks, make sure he's covered and everything he says is, you know, in character. And then we go back and do the next character and we read it through that way. Um, and that's helped. That's helped a lot. And that's with your writing partner, Jane. You, you used to be, were you married? You guys were married, right? And then divorced? No, but, no, but a lot of articles uh, would, would not even ask and say, Billy and his wife, Jane. No, we were never married. We met in high school. We worked together for 46 years. Uh, she just passed away in February, uh, unexpectedly, really unexpectedly. Uh -huh. And um, no, we, we married different people. And uh, in fact, one of Jane's divorces, not that she had all that many, but one of her, her she had two, one of her uh, divorces uh, became the subject of uh, our play, uh, You've Got Hate Mail, that we did off Broadway for a couple of years and toured the world with it. Um, and that was a, uh, 
a husband sends his mistress a an email and the wife accidentally gets it sent to her instead and that starts the whole the world exploding and at the time when she was going through the divorce and she and the husband were writing to each other uh he was right trying try to get back with her and she was just nasty and she's crying at her desk and i'm looking over her shoulder at the emails and i'm thinking this is hilarious so I said, hang on to these because they may come in handy someday. And 10 years later, we wrote a show about it. And some of the things she got the biggest laughs on were things that were killing her at the time when she was writing them. But uh, I think it was very cathartic to her. But, uh, <laughs> but it, was, it was funny for me. It's funny how, uh, how time does change our tragedies. The, uh, what, what, what's, you know, what's just beating the shit out of us <laughs> uh, you know, yesterday. Give it, give it a couple years and it's material. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And uh, I also don't believe, uh, jumping subjects a little bit, I don't believe in writer's block. I don't, I don't think it exists. I think it's just laziness. Um, I always, uh, to me, the easiest thing to do is a rewrite. So I always, from my staff, uh, anytime we're on a TV show, uh, just crank it out. I don't care how terrible it is, crank it out. And then the second time you look at it, you'll go, no, that's wrong. And I'll change this. And then that part's easy. But I always think of writing a script. It's like you got a big lump of clay and you just got to keep chipping away at it until you get, get the thing that's, the, that's right. And, um, and we did that with, with that play in particular because it went all over the place. And finally, we got it down to its core and, uh, and it worked pretty well. I, I like how you bring up the... Uh how you say it's like chipping at clay because in order to have a first draft, that just means you have to have a piece. You have to have the lump of clay. If you don't right. have a lump of clay, there's nothing to play with. Yeah. So go fast, make it, you know, make it as uh, if it's bad, it's bad, whatever, but it's in there. Yeah. And we found uh, I, I, the play we were talking about before, do not disturb what I discovered in that when you don't have any time to think, and if you've been doing it long enough, the craft takes over. So, you know, we were able to sort of make sense of what we were doing quickly. Same thing with Suddenly Susan when we had to write that in 48 hours. You don't have time to second guess yourself. You just jump in. And uh, hopefully, you've been doing it long enough, the craft sort of gets you through. And at the same time, this always intrigues me, it gets your left brain out of the way of your right brain, I think, if you're, mm -hmm. if you're that much of a gun to your head. Because our right brain wants to create and just go, let's go to outer space, right? And then our left brain's like, no, that's not logical. We need to get you through the day, and you need to know these equations. Yeah, that's true. Um, we used to joke that somebody would say, how, how do you and Jane write? And I said, well, basically, we yell at each other until we have a script. You know, <laughs> I, I, would, well, I didn't like what she did. She didn't like what I did. We chip away at it, and suddenly, you know, we get our script. Um, and I know in, in Charles Grodin's book, he talked about being the, uh, the assistant to Renee Taylor and Joe Bologna. And uh, he said he, the first day on the job, he was sitting out at the desk and in the office, he heard them screaming at each other. And he thought, oh, my job is it's going to be, they're going to break up. My life is over. The job's going to end. And about two hours later, Renee came out and handed him a script and said, I think it's pretty good. <laughs> so Jane and I sort of worked the same way. I, mean, I, I like that working, uh, talking about working as a writing team. I, I feel like that you have to have that conflict. You have to be brutally honest in order to get what you, I haven't been on a writing team before, but 
this is something that you know I would think as an outsider to be just so brutally honest so we can you can tell each other and go back and forth so there's trust there there's like absolute trust absolutely true um, and I and I the other thing I think is important with a team is you need to fill in the gaps where the other person lacks you know um, because I think a lot of times, especially maybe about 10 years ago, teams were very in. So, so agents would match clients together and you're, now you're a team and try and get them on a TV show. If, especially if there was a woman in the team, it was easier to sell it, I guess. Um, but a lot of those didn't work because the same, if you have two people who have the same strengths, you're just going to fight each other to get to the computer and you're not going to accomplish anything. For Jane and me, there's a lot of give and take. You know, I didn't write the uh, emotional scenes. Jane would write that stuff. I would write the broad, the real broad stuff, and then we would we would chip away at each other, and uh, and it and it worked. How did she like your book? Wait, wait, what was her review of your book? She, uh, it was very, it was interesting. She loved the book. Um, she. She had me, I forget, there were one or two stories she made me pull out because she thought they were just too nasty. But um, she got to read it, she got to edit it with me, and she got to approve the pictures before she passed away. So I was grateful for that. Um, but she liked it. She liked it a lot. Oh, that's great. I didn't, I didn't realize she gave you that, much note, that many notes on it. So you yeah. kind of kept the, the relationship going even to the book. Yeah. yeah. Um, like she... <laughs> One thing in particular I mentioned at one point, I said she threw a teapot at me and she said, no, that was a vacuum. It's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it was much more violent than that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and then I it just, yeah, this book excites me to no end because I love seeing behind the scenes of, of TV. I got to, I got to be... Um, what do they call it? I got to shadow a director on Madam Secretary last year. Oh, so I got to so I got to see the whole behind the scenes of the of the TV show as yeah. well as the oh the writers are going to do this the producers are going to do this. Yeah. He brought me in on all of it and it just blew my mind the the politics involved and then sitting at the table read and just seeing how everyone worked at the table read and then after I got to talk yeah I got to sit in on the executive producer meeting and the two with the two main actors and. It was a completely different vibe than the read through. I was going, wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, when I first started, I didn't get to. Um, on, on New Heart was my, our first TV show. We didn't take part in the, exec, in the executive producer meetings with the network. That was just, we were the writing staff, you know, do your job and go away. On Anything But Love, which was our second show. Peter Noah insisted all his writers be with him when the network gave notes. So he didn't have to then translate what they said back in the room. And it made much more, it makes much more sense. And I've, I've done that ever since too. Um, but it's, it's, it's funny watching different executive producers and how they how the, the politic of how they, they do it all. Uh, Peter was a good, uh, a good teacher um, because he would explain to the network people before they got a chance to talk. He would explain what was wrong and what was going to be fixed in such a way that you would have felt like an idiot if you'd said, no, I think it's better if you, you know. So he, he preempted all the network notes with what he was going to fix. And they pretty much would say, oh, good idea. Go, go ahead, Peter. Perfect. 
and then we then the writers all knew what to write and uh, we didn't have to because a lot of times you get studio notes separate from the network notes they're opposing notes and you have to sort of juggle until you get to be uh, chuck laurie and then you do what you want but uh but until then you you're sort of playing both both teams you know and uh but ultimately you want it to be your show in the way you want it uh the one thing i have learned after all this time is uh if you're going to go down in flames go down in your own flame you know stand by your guns uh i'm not there to please the the network or the or the studio as much as i am there to please the audience and and that's i feel like um as i as i've noticed in my limited experience there's a lot of fear on every level in in the industry it's all works of fear and I just don't feel like that produces great material. I feel like great material is more produced on a, you know, collaborative note of, you know, whoever you are, let's yeah. put this together. And there's, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of that or, or maybe no. any of it. I don't know. When, when I started, I sound like I'm a hundred years old, but when I started, the, the, the creative people were hired to be creative. And the only really network interference you had was, uh, can you not say the word damn, you know, that was pretty much it. And then as the years have gone, it's just, everything's micromanaged, micromanaged, micromanaged to a point where I don't care what TV show it is. I don't care how terrible it is. If it's on the air, I always think good for you. I know what you had to go through to get it there, you know, and I'm yeah. sure it's nothing what you've set out to do, but you got on good for you. You know, um, that's what I, you mentioned the plays. One of the things that kept my sanity was I would do one play a year, usually. So uh, in, in the theater, uh, actually, Sam Bobrick, he wrote a, he did a show for Louis Anderson, and Jane and I uh, did a, a script for him. And he sat us down, it was right when we were starting out, and he sat us down, and he said, you guys are playwrights. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, let me explain how television works. In the theater, you are the top of the pyramid, and everybody is working to please you. You're in television now. You're the bottom of the pyramid. You are a blueprint, and people are going to just change your stuff. You just got to get used to it. And at first, I thought, wow, what's he talking about? But then, I, then we started working on Newhart, and if they changed the word hello to hi, I would get offended. What was wrong with hello? You know, <laughs> There was nothing wrong with that. But uh, you, you, you have to learn... To, uh, to sort of give in to that and let the executive producer run his own show, really. And then if you think you know better than that guy, well, when you get your own show, you can do your stuff then. I, I, just, I just realized the title of the uh, TV series adaptation to your book, What Was Wrong With Hello? <laughs> That's good. I like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I like it, yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. Um, in a perfect world, would, would you have just stuck with plays and being a playwright? I think if I initially stuck with what I wanted to do, I just would have performed. I only wrote plays to give myself something to act in. And then I started directing so people wouldn't mess up my playwriting. And then I started producing so no one would mess up my direction. And then I, I liked the, not the way it's gonna sound, but Woody Allen was sort of my, my hero in terms of he, he wrote and he directed and he was in his stuff. That to me was great. If I could have done that and can do that in the theater 
I probably never would have come into TV except for the fact that I was so heavily influenced by Lucille Ball and I Love Lucy that from the time I was a kid, I wanted to work in TV. And I wanted to do that kind of comedy. I wanted to do real broad comedy that was honest, not, you know, not crap, basically. You yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so when I finally got to work with Lucy, it was, it, that was a dream come true, really was. But, um, but yeah, I guess if all things considered, I would say now I'm back doing the theater mostly full time, except, except now when I'm not doing theater at all because there's no theater. Right. But, um, but we, we've been touring around with uh, our 25th play, which is Boomer Boys. It's a musical about men in their 50s, 60s, and the changes that men go through and that sort of thing. And it's a musical and it's very funny. Well, and that's directed dir directly at me. So thank you. I can't <laughs> wait to see it. <laughs> My pleasure. And, and, and the nice thing for me is we were, we've been touring it for two and a half years. So it's simply so once we start once we start touring again, it'll it'll be a continuation of the way things were before Jane passed away. So I don't really have to make a sharp left turn. Okay, okay, now what do I do? Because we've already got that in motion. Right, and and there's and I I you know when when it uh, when it gets touring again, there's got to be some gratitude, uh, just like utter gratitude for Jane as this is yeah. being played out. It, it's the emotions have to be a lot. It, it must be a different. Vibe. It, it's rough right now because we really haven't we haven't had a memorial for her yet because we couldn't yeah. you yeah. know and um so there's and and she was sick for 15 months never thought she was gonna die tough little thing and uh it, it did, didn't make any sense just came out of left field she was perfectly healthy and all of a sudden they told her she had pancreatic cancer and what are you talking about i had a blood test two weeks ago and said i was healthy uh she turned yellow overnight that's how we found out yeah. And uh, God love her, she tried everything. You know, chemo this, chemo that, chemo that. Finally, your body just came out. But we, she, she insisted on us working. We have, we have three projects we wrote that are sitting on a shelf right now because she, she, this, this illness wasn't an imposition, and she, but she wanted to work. So we worked two days a week. I'd go out to the house. We'd work there. And um, it wasn't until two weeks before she passed away that I thought she might pass away. That what's great about that is it doesn't seem like it is work. This is like oh. a life calling. And then you just, you're, you're just like, you get, you get to pay bills with it. That's but, right. Yeah. I don't feel like I've worked a day. Well, I was going to say, I don't feel like I've worked a day in my life, but there are probably two or three shows where I feel like I worked a lot. <laughs> you know, depends on who the star is and uh, that sort of thing. But, uh, yeah, but for the most part, I mean, it's been great. I've never worked outside of show business. I'm not, I just have never worked outside of show business. It's very weird. Because um, I was writing, when I was still in junior high, I was running a children's theater company out of a local theater where I would write the shows and direct them, and we'd rehearse them. The morning, that's how slapped together they were. The morning of the show, the actors would get together and uh, tell them what they're doing, and they'd go backstage and memorize the lines as the audience filled in. We always had a guy with a, a, a storybook in his hands on stage, and now he went over to the tree, and the guy would remember, I have to go over to the tree. So, uh, but what that did is it prepared me to write for television because I was doing a different show every week. And, uh, but I've never worked outside of show business. It's kind of, kind of odd. 
I don't know what I would do now if I had to. I, I, I think, well, there, there's show business and there's storytelling. It feels like the, the, the storytelling urge in you, whether a performer or a writer, is it, if we didn't have show business, there would be a campfire. You'd be the guy going, campfire yeah. tonight, my place. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Uh, yeah, when I was a kid, I used to I used to do puppet shows for my cousins. I'd do shows in the backyard for all the neighbor kids and you know that sort of thing. So, but there was never a doubt, never a doubt that I wasn't going to go into this. I did a, I did I did go to college for a week and a half because my uh, my father insisted I had to have something to fall back on, and I said I don't plan on falling back. So why do I need to do that? And he said you're going to college. So I got, I got accepted into some really nice schools and I, and I picked the cheapest one, which was, I knew I was wasting my father's money. So I picked at the time Montclair University in New Jersey, which at the time was $700 for the year. Wow. And I lasted about a week and a half. It got in the, my classes got in the way of auditions in New York. And so I stopped going to the classes. My father came to pick me up on one weekend and I put everything I owned in the car and we went home. And uh, I never told the school I was leaving. So somewhere I have a, a, a transcript of straight Fs, I'm sure. So, but the, the nice thing was 20 years later, Olympia Dukakis directed one of my plays at that college. So I felt like I was vindicated in some way. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's it's almost like uh, moon, like when you know back in the day when you're a kid and you like pull your pants down and moon people, you know, it's it, it's like you got to moon it in like such a glamorous way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> to bring it down to my terms, because you know that's that's how I think. <laughs> got it. Um, what so. When was the first, how far are you from New York where you go in to do the auditions and when do you get your first auditions for uh, something that's, uh, that you're going, wait a second, I'm in on it. I, we, we had nobody in show business in our family at all. My father was an ex-Marine uh, engineer, real, you know, black and white life, you know, mm -hmm. mother worked for a doctor's office and, um, and my brother uh, was a musician, but he was still struggling at the time I got out of high school. And um, he ended up doing okay, from what I understand. I don't know whatever became of him. <laughs> uh, yes, he came. He did okay. Uh, uh, for, for the listeners, uh, he uh, uh, Bruce Springsteen, the E Street Band, Little Steven and the Disciples of Soul, uh, Lily Hammer, The Sopranos, Little Steven's Underground Garage on the radio. Wicked Cool Records. He's a busy guy. So anyway. Um, so for a family that's not in show business at all, it's an anomaly to turn out two brothers like you. And my sister's a writer, too. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I, and, and I always thought, geez, we have such a normal family. Why normally you hear horror stories of why people go into show business? We didn't have that. So something's wrong with us. But um but I, but what I did get, what what we did get from my father was a work ethic. You know, that was a tough work ethic. He didn't care what you did as long as you were the best at what you did. You know, and my mother gave us the safety net of if anything ever goes wrong, you can always you, can, you have a home. You know, and we're always here for you. So the combination of the two was great for us. Um, but uh, oh, you asked about how far away. 
uh, we lived in, in central New Jersey, so we had about a 45 minute bus ride to New York to go audition for things for me. And then when I was at Montclair, it was probably 20 minutes. Um, I started acting in local theater right out of high, in high school. And um, I got a manager through community theater who had, some people had seen me and make a long story short, I got a, a manager that way. My very first movie audition was Jaws 2, which I got. Which you got. That was your first audition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, and that took me to uh, Martha's Vineyard in Florida for uh, 11 months. And as an actor, I lived off of that money for a couple of years, you know. And uh, still friends with all those guys. Uh, that, that almost felt like our high school graduation because it was a new movie. It was a, the first movie for a lot of us. And we've all kept in touch. In fact, a couple of years ago, about four years ago, um, Tom Dunlop, who was in the movie with me, called me up and said, I'm going to be in L.A. Can, can we have lunch or dinner? And I said, yeah, let's have dinner. I said, you know what? I was just going to have uh, dinner with our friend Gigi, too, who's also in the movie. I'll call her, too. And then a bell went off, and I started phone calls. And within 48 hours, the entire surviving cast and crew of Jaws 2 all met in Westwood for a big reunion. Lorraine Gary, Sid Sheinberg. Uh, Janot Schwark, the director, Carl Gottlieb, who wrote the Jaws and Jaws 2, and all the, all the, we were the kids, all the kids, and it was great. It was like we had just seen each other the day before. It was, it was terrific. So that was my first movie, and then, uh, and then uh, I started writing the plays when I was on the set of Star Trek, the motion picture for Robert Wise. I thought I was going to be the new Spock when they cast me because he wasn't, Leonard Nimoy hadn't been signed on. This was the first Star Trek movie. And uh, I, I met Robert Wise and they cast me and, and my agents at the time were saying, this is going to be big, Bill. You're going to be the new Spock. You're going to be the Spock. Well, Leonard Nimoy signed the contract, showed up for work, and I had next to nothing to do on the, on the movie except stand in the background and press buttons while I look at the screen. So I wanted, you know, just a couple lines. But I was in this heavy makeup, and I couldn't leave the, the lot because they, it was such a big secret thing, the Star Trek stuff. So I, I was trapped in my dressing room for lunch. So I said, Jane, bring, a type, bring, my, bring my typewriter. We're going to write ourselves a play. So we, I wrote a play, Love, Sex, and the IRS, while we were on the set of Star Trek. That year, friends of mine who had a, a dinner theater in New Jersey put it on, and Samuel French, the play publisher took the play and published it. And then they sent us the contracts. They said, we'll take this play plus your next two. It's like, next two? I wasn't planning on writing more than one. Let's write two more. So we wrote two more. And then every year, it would be a new show, a new, new play, new play, new play. And now we're 25. So back and forth from that to TV. And, uh, and the TV only started because uh, we had the theater we had back there, we were running it at that time, it, it had closed. And one of the reviews had said, these people should be writing for television, one of our plays. It was not meant as a compliment. Um, <laughs> Did you take it as a compliment at the time? No, no, oh, I, was okay, okay. <laughs> I was horribly offended, especially because for me, this was this had been the one that I thought, oh, we've now stepped up our game, you know, this is a, this is a, a great play. So I packed up the, uh, the car with the computer, came out here. The plays got us 
onto the Bob Newhart show. And, um, and from there, I remember calling my agent the first day that we got the offer to work for Bob Newhart. And I said, Maggie, I don't know if I should take this because, you know, it's going to interrupt my acting career for a year. I don't know if I, what do you think? Two weeks later, when she hadn't answered my call, I realized, I don't think I'm giving that much up. <laughs> so we, we took that job and, uh, one job led to another. And, uh, so we've always gone back and forth where most people take a hiatus and go to France, we would go back to New Jersey and put on a play. So part of my French, but no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that was, I, I'll, I, I'll, yeah, I wish I could edit this, but I don't. Can we take that out? No. All right. So, um, <laughs> what I love about that story is don't you, the work ethic is there because you had to be stuck in your trailer in makeup and not have that much to do on the Star Trek show where most people would be like, I'm just going to get stoned the whole time <laughs> and play video games. No, you said, let's get a typewriter in here. Let's yeah. make this a positive. Yeah, yeah. It, do you do that in life? Do you just grab these like limitations and go, let's make this a positive? Yes, absolutely. Um, we've always, like, I'm going to continue using the we, even though she's not here anymore. Uh, the, we've always had three or four things going on at once. Uh, if we're writing, if we're performing one play, we're already writing the next one and, and writing a TV pilot at the same time or, uh, or one of our shows gets booked around. So while I'm in the hotel room, I'll start writing something else. Um, what we've found works for us is if it scares me, it's the right thing to try. We wrote a musical. No, had, you know, I don't know how to read music or write music. We decided to do it because why not? No one told us we can't. So we tried, we wrote, we wrote, it was called Merrily We Dance and Sing. It was a bunch of uh, bad community theater actors putting on an operetta and there's a escaped murderer and it was a big complicated broad Marx brother like thing. Um, but we, uh, we started writing, it was supposed to, it was supposed to be a play that stopped maybe 10 minutes into the actual show and then took place in the audience and in the lobby of the actual theater. But we had so much fun writing those first 10 minutes, we kept going and then it got longer and longer and longer and poor Ed Alton, who did all my music for my TV shows, he agreed to, to arrange the music for those first 10 minutes. And then suddenly, here's 20 more songs, do those too. And, uh, but that turned out great, that's one of my favorite shows. And uh, we did Silent Laughter off Broadway, which was a uh, silent movie. This is sort of done as a dare. Um, we performed a slapstick silent film comedy live on stage with an organ, with title cards for the actor's dialogue above our heads, and everything was in shades of gray, black, and white. And we got great reviews in the New York Times. Unfortunately, it was all too close to 9-11, and there were no audiences for in, in New York, you know, yeah. for the most part. So we ran, I think we ran that eight weeks and closed that, but... Um, but uh, yeah, it, yeah, we always we always look at okay. We got you get you, we have a little gap of time here. What are we going to fill it with? Let's try this. That's fantastic, and I love the whole idea of writing what scares you, and then 
oh, let's dare each other to do this because yeah. this is impossible and the worst idea in the world. If uh -huh. anyone looked at us, let's make it, let's make it the best thing ever. Yeah. Even though we don't have a clue. Exactly. Exactly. We did a, uh, one of my other favorite shows is called The Night at the Nutcracker. And this, this came about because I was watching A Night at the Opera with my kids once, and we were still trying to fish for what our next play was gonna be. And I thought, God, I would love to have written for the Marx Brothers. And I went into the office the next day, and Jane said, I know what we're gonna do. And I said, I know what we're gonna do too. And she said, I wanna do a, a Christmas show. And I said, oh, I wanna do a Marx Brothers show. And she immediately said, A Night at the Nutcracker. So we did, we wrote the Marx Brothers. It, was a, if, it would have been the movie they did right after uh, Night in Casablanca, in my mind. Mm -hmm. So, so we we rewrote what would have been their one of their movies, and we did that live on stage too. And uh, so, but because originally all our plays were farces, they were formulaic farces, um, and and frankly, they were thinly disguised Lucy episodes, I think, in the beginning. But uh, then we started branching out and. Uh, and uh, I don't know what we are now, but that's what we have. You you were like a you know, you're a aficionado of Lucy, and I, I love how you knew you, you watched every video of hers as, when you were young. You you yeah. studied her, yeah. And that and then that because when you're studying her as a kid, or when you're just you know the you don't think that's going to go somewhere. All of a sudden, you get to work with her. Yeah. Yeah, it's just who would have thought? I mean, I'm sure it was well, as you say in the as you show in the book, you're you're an you're you're so enamored of uh, is that the right word? Sure. <laughs> okay, enamored of her that uh, you know you're you're almost stalking her, and then all of yeah. a sudden yeah. you're invited to her house. It's just there there's there's such a beauty to that where it's just it, the the synchronicity of like. You were you were supposed to work with her. That was just. I think so. I really I do feel that I feel that way. Um, I, I do tell the story a lot, but I, I this 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 means a lot to me. When I first came out to L.A. to do pickup scenes for Jaws Two, I drove straight from the airport to Lucille Ball's house. I wanted to meet her. The whole the I want to meet her. I want to learn from her. That sort of thing. Bit of a stalker. So I drove. <laughs> Drove straight to her house. Jane wouldn't get out of the car. What do you? And I, so I started to get out of the car. She said, "What are you doing?" I said, "I gotta go meet her." So I walked up the brick walkway. I knocked on the door, and Jane's head is buried under the dashboard. And a uh, door opens. Japanese houseboy, whatever he was, uh, answers the door. And I said, "Billy Van Zandt's here to see Lucille Ball." <laughs> and he said, uh, "She's not here now." Slam the door in my face. I go back in the car, and we drive away. Ten years later, I'm in Lucy's house as a guest, and I said, we were talking about all sorts of things, and I said, uh, did you ever meet Charlie Chaplin? I said, you, you, you've imitated him in your shows. I could see the influence, but I never saw a picture of you two together. And she said, uh, no, but I'll tell you a funny story. In 1976, uh, Gary, her husband, Gary and I were in Switzerland, and I found out where he lived. So we drove over to the house, but Gary wouldn't get out of the car stuck his head under the dashboard. I got out and I walked up the gate, knocked on the door. Big fat housekeeper answers the door and I said, hi, Lucille Ball's here to see Charlie Chaplin. And they said, he's not here now and slammed the door in my face. And I never told her my part of the story. 
because we had just previously talked about her security because the house was really on the street and exposed. Yeah. But apparently with one press of the button, if some fan got out of hand, bars would come down over the windows and stuff. And I thought, I can't tell the story. They'll throw me out of the house right now. But uh, we, we, I only, I only really knew her for three weeks, really. Um, and then we wrote to each other a couple of times, but, um, but it was like I had known her my whole life. And the weirdest part for me was watching her rehearse because as an actor, I, you know, I studied her timing and she would always deliver a punchline out towards the camera on the left and then finish the joke on the right hand side a lot of times. So I started getting used to doing it that way on stage. And I'm watching her rehearse for this Life with Lucy show and my mouth hit the floor because I realized the only reason she started a joke out left and brought it to the right was she was reading her lines off of cue cards. I had been imitating her for 20 years or something and I didn't have cue cards. <laughs> you know? So it was a little, little disconcerting. A little. But, uh, but she was great. She was great. I was terrified to meet her thinking, you know, she could be a horror and you know ruin my childhood thing. She was great. Really loved her. Yeah, they say don't meet your heroes. And I'm like, no, jump in there, meet them. You know, yeah. sometimes they have bad days. <laughs> Let I it be. I was. I've been very lucky through my career. You know, like, uh, Don Rickles, Frank Sinatra, uh, uh, Bob Newhart. Bob Newhart spoiled me for every comedian that came after because he was such a nice guy. Is such a nice guy. And he was so giving to the other actors and to the writers. Um, it was a great lesson to be to to learn under him of how to run a show. Well, and, and in the book, when you talked about how Bob Newhart would let the other actors have the good jokes, and yeah. that's the formula for a great show. He was there. There's a big picture to it. And then we get to Martin Lawrence, who keeps going. It's the Martin show. Why are you giving him that joke? That's, that's my terrible translation of what, you know, but, um, but that's just like, that doesn't make a formula for a long running show where people are going to come back to over and over again. You know? Well, Martin was interesting because he hit, he was, he was completely, as far as I'm concerned, he was completely unknown before he did that show. People had seen him do, um, house party, uh, Russell Simmons, uh, Oh, Def Jam. Def Jam. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he, but this was his first TV thing. And within, I would say within three weeks of our show airing while we were still taping it, he was a, he was a superstar. The, everybody in the audience went crazy for him and would imitate his characters. And we'd only been on the air three weeks and they knew all the lines and they had t-shirts made. And, you know, and I, I do think that working with Martin and working with Bob Newhart, they worked similarly. You wouldn't think it, but they did. Because all that mattered to them was the studio audience you were filming in front of. One take per scene and done. And uh, Tisha Campbell, I will give her a lot of credit. I thought she was brilliantly brilliant at this. She, Martin would oftentimes just improv. And she would have to find him funny, find him attractive, and somehow get him back into the script. 
and she pulled it off. I mean, you can you can you can see him go off on things. You can realize this is not in the script. He's now milking this thing for twenty minutes while he's stretching. And but um, but she was she was the anchor. And I I always think of her as what I imagine Audrey Meadows was to Jackie Gleason, because he he would go off on his thing, and they you'd see her working back into a script. You know, I had the biggest crush on her. She was in a movie with, uh, called House Party before yeah. she was in Martin. And the minute I saw that movie, I, just, I fell in love with her. I was, I was just like, wow. And then, when she, and then I saw that she was on Martin, and it was just like, I, 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 was, just, I was just this kid going, <laughs> one day she'll marry me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was great. She is great. And, uh, and Tashina Arnold I loved. She was, she's turned into a, you know, a, a legendary TV actress to me. Uh, she's just great. Um, yeah, Martin was interesting. We only did the first season. We created the characters of uh, Stan and Sean, uh, Garrett Morris in the radio station and his, and his whipping boy sidekick. Uh, Jane and I created those and we created, um, oh, I just forgot the names of them. Otis, the security guard and Roscoe, the little kid that he would play on his knees, the snotty nose, and a couple others. But, um, but it, was, it was so much, it was difficult, I will say that. It was difficult working on that show because he didn't trust anybody. And it wasn't, I'm not saying a white-black thing. I mean, he didn't trust anybody. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes he would, he would come over to the writer's room and take one of his friends. He had a couple friends on the staff. And he would take one into the hall and you'd, uh, you'd hear him threaten to kill the guy if he didn't make the script funnier. <laughs> Whoa, okay. <laughs> That's a little much, but okay. Uh, and uh, yeah, we did one season of that and then we sold our show for Don Rickles and we left. And Don Rickles gave you a blurb in such a Don Rickles way. Uh, what was it? Uh, Billy Van Zandt is a good friend and a great writer providing I give him the lines. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he was, I, I think that was probably of, you know, there's still more to come, I hope, but that was probably my favorite time on a TV show. And it was all because of him. He was so, so sweet and so funny. Frank Pace, our uh, line producer, uh, had the sense to tell the camera crew to never turn off the cameras after cut. So we have fantastic, you can find all of it on, uh, on YouTube, all the outtake footage because Don was never off. You know, if he was in a scene and he blew his line, he didn't go study it. He'd just start attacking the audience, attacking the cameraman, and, and it was quite brilliantly funny. And, uh, but we got it all on film, which was great. So as that show went on, the show itself became shorter and shorter, and we put longer and longer outtakes at the end of the show because he was just too funny. That's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Billy, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great. Oh, that was that was it. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> yeah, I know. Time yeah. flies when you're enjoying like that. it. I went like that. Billy Van Zant on Drinks with Tony. Check out his book, Get in the Car, Jane. It's part behind-the-scenes gossip, part textbook, all truth. And also coming up on June 3rd, if you want to join the online creative writing workshop for free, at the Los Feliz Library, um, go to the go to la 
lapl.org and do a search for uh, the creative writing um, creative writing information. You're going to have to uh, register with your email and then you'll join, be able to join the Zoom meeting. To, uh, that's Wednesday night, tomorrow night at 6 p.m. June 3rd, 6 p.m. Pacific time. You are welcome to join throughout the world. Thanks for listening. I will see you next week on Drinks with Tony.